God's word from Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, Philippi was a sort of a jurisdiction, something like Elmhurst, Illinois, not quite the same level. But when Jesus came to a real place in Palestine, on the coast of the Mediterranean, just almost directly west of Jerusalem, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Uh, Dear friends, in Jesus' day, People were not at all agreed as to who he was. They must have uh, argued about it, like we argue about politics. In their homes, in the marketplace, on the job. Who is this man from Galilee? Um, People were divided. As a matter of fact, John says that specifically. John 10, verse 19, where it says, There was a division among them concerning him. People could not agree as to who Jesus was. And you know, that difference of opinion has carried on right to the present day. People today are not at all agreed as to who Jesus was and is. Now, it wouldn't be so bad if the world had one opinion of Jesus and the church had another opinion. We would expect that. Unbelievers would not have the same conception, idea of the Lord Jesus, as believers would. But the tragedy is that in the church, that is, among churches, among pastors, among theologians, there's no agreement as to who Jesus was. This was brought to me in a very startling way when I was a student, (laughs) if I remember back that far, uh, at the University of Chicago. One of the Christian student organizations, I don't know whether it was InterVarsity, Christian Fellowship, or Campus Crusade for Christ. I've gotten a more and more appreciation for these uh, organizations on secular campuses uh, because many of our students at Westminster Seminary came to know the Lord through campus ministries, student ministries, many from unusual backgrounds, Jewish, Catholic, many others. Well, one of these organizations, I'm drifting a little bit here, Uh, one of these organizations, these Christian organizations, 
invited two prominent theologians to the campus to ask them to debate what the essential issues of the Christian faith were. And they invited Francis Schaeffer of Labrie, who happened to be a student at Westminster about 80 years ago, I guess, and Bishop Pike, who was presiding bishop of the Archdiocese of San Francisco Episcopal Church in America. Protestant Episcopal Church of America. And they debated what the essential issues of the Christian religion were. It went on for a couple hours. But it came down to this. A difference of opinion regarding Jesus. For Bishop Pike, Jesus was the founder of a religion called Christianity. He was the first Christian. Like Mohammed was the first Muslim. And Gautama was the first Buddhist. And Joseph Smith was the first Mormon. In his judgment, Jesus began the religion called Christianity, and he taught some marvelous teachings. And those who all call themselves Christians follow his teaching. But he's gone, buried in some forgotten tomb in Palestine, like Mohammed is and Gautama is, and Joseph Smith is. But Francis Schaeffer had a different opinion. He testified to his belief in Jesus as a divine son of God, the savior of the world, the redeemer of those who trust in him. And it was a marvelous display on that secular university campus. I, am, I, I wonder if that would be possible today to have prominent theologians speak about the matters of the Christian faith on our secular campuses. Well, that question is really fundamental to the Christian faith. Who is Jesus? And it's the dividing line, isn't it? And if he is the, the founder of a major religion called Christianity and he's gone and dead and buried while his teachings live on. Well, then Jesus asked the disciples, and we're asking ourselves, the wrong question. If Jesus was simply the founder of Christianity, we should be asking, what was his teachings? What kind of a lifestyle did he recommend? What kind of ethics did he promote? But since he is the eternal son of the God, in whose hand are the issues of life, then who he is takes on supreme importance. As a matter of fact, one's response makes the difference between life and death, heaven and hell, happiness or misery forever. So who is Jesus? Why was this such an important question? must have been because Jesus asked it, and he asked it of his disciples. Who is Jesus? That's our question tonight. Would you put it on the screen, please? To begin with, there were differing opinions. We're not surprised. The disciples' response to Jesus' question must have gotten them together in a little circle and say, how shall we answer this? Because they knew what people were saying about him. They knew that the Pharisees called him a deceiver. 
a fraud. They said he was demon-possessed, that he did his miracles by the power of devils. The disciples didn't remind Jesus of those opinions, did they? Maybe they thought about it, but they thought, hey, we'll try to respond to this question with the best opinions that we can imagine. Uh, they recoiled at what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were teaching, as we recall today. So when the disciples compare Jesus, they talk about people's opinions of Jesus that are similar to some of the great prophets of the Old Testament. It almost seems complimentary. These were opinions of people who liked Jesus. They were saying what they thought were rather good things about Jesus. My, you ask either of your pastors if he'd like to be compared with John the Baptist, for instance. He would take it as a compliment. My, John the Baptist was a great preacher, wasn't he? He attracted the crowds, and he had one theme, repentance, and turn to God. Remember how it's recorded in Matthew 3, verse 18, and John the Baptist came among them and said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And about a year later, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 4, the next chapter, Jesus came on the public scene. And lo and behold, the very first words recorded in Matthew that Jesus spoke were the same. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So people started elbowing each other and said, we got another John the Baptist among us. It's not surprising at all that Jesus was compared to John the Baptist. And Elijah, why, he was that courageous Old Testament prophet who confronted Ahab and his wicked king Jezebel with the truth. He called them to faith and he criticized their idolatry. He had the courage that almost cost him his life. Jezebel tried to hunt him down. And Jesus, when he came 800 years later, he confronted Herod, called him an old fox. He confronted Pilate. He confronted all the secular leaders of his day with great courage in the face of a risk on his own life. Not only that, remember, remember when I, Elijah was um, uh, comforted or given a room in a woman's house, a widow's house, and so he would go out uh, preaching from village to village, then he would come and, and recuperate for his next itinerant ministry, well, that woman was known as the widow of Zarephath. And you can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 and following. Well, she had a little son, and the son became ill while Elijah was out preaching somewhere. And the son apparently died. And when Elijah returned to the house, the widow sorrowfully said, is this? Is this the way the Lord treats me after befriending one of his prophets? And you'll recall that Elijah stretched himself out on that young boy 
And he prayed to God to restore his spirit. And he came alive. And Elijah was able to bring that son to his now joyful mother. Well, 800 years later, Jesus saw a funeral procession going by. And there was a young child on this board. They usually carried the dead out sort of in the open on a board brought to the gravesite. And he saw the widow of hmm, Nan weeping along the way. And Jesus, out of compassion, went and touched that young boy and brought him back to life and presented, presented him to his now joyful widowed mother. And people were amazed, and they said, just like Elijah. Jeremiah, of course, was uh, called the weeping prophet. He wept over Jerusalem's spiritual idolatry and uh, moral collapse. He's called the weeping prophet. And one of the books he wrote is called Lamentations. Lament is a sorrowful disposition. He wept over Jerusalem's faith, unfaithfulness and said that it would soon be subjected to captivity and exile. And not many years later, the Babylonian armies came and devastated Jerusalem in fulfillment of Jeremiah's prediction. And about 600 years later, over the rebuilt Jerusalem, which was built, rebuilt about 150 years later, Jesus wept. And he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, stones those sent unto him, how often I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not have anything of it. Therefore your house is left unto you desolate, and about 40 years later, the Roman army came and devastated Jerusalem. No wonder people said, wow, this man has a very similar attitude that Jeremiah had. And of course, he, he was compared to some of the other prophets. Not mentioned here, but one of the prophets. And that's a compliment in itself, because after all, the prophets were spokespersons for God himself. So these were the opinions people had about Jesus. And these were opinions, as I say, that people who liked Jesus had. But comparing Jesus to the greatest of prophets reduces to the level of insult. For he is so much more than a prophet. Even Islam accepts Jesus as a prophet. Read the Quran. It even says Jesus was born of a virgin, that he performed miracles. It never says that about Muhammad. They had high regard for Jesus. But the Quran says he never died on the cross. He never arose from the grave and ascended to heaven. He is not the Lord of glory who saves those who repent and call upon him. To have that kind of a profession requires heavenly knowledge. 
Did you notice that? When, when after the disciples said, people are comparing you to the greatest of the prophets, Jesus says, but what about you? What about you? What's the inspired answer to this question, who is Jesus? Well, to begin with, you can't find it in some human source. Because when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says, oh, you didn't discover that from any man. Remember how we read that? He said, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father who is in heaven. You know, people can say nice things about Jesus, but to really believe that he is the divine Son of God, capable of redeeming those who repent and believe, requires divine knowledge. And if you believe that, it's because the Holy Spirit has touched your heart to believe it not because you read some opinion of some theologian or even a prophet. In fact, in 1 John 4, verse 15, it says, if if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him. So it's not human knowledge that brings us to this point. It's a divine knowledge from God, and that was true of the apostles as well. So Peter says, the answer to your question, Jesus, is this. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. I wonder if Peter realized the profoundness of his own answer. Oh, we know later he did. But no, we, later we know also he denied his Lord. He had his, his weak time. Because when you read the epistles, it's very obvious that he committed himself to Jesus as the divine son of God. But I wonder if if Peter realized the profoundness of his own statement because what he was saying was that you, Jesus, standing right before me are are the result of the promise of Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would destroy the serpent. That is, someone born of a woman would one day crush the head of the serpent and destroy the works of darkness. Peter is saying, Jesus, you're that one. He's saying, Peter, you are the one promised to Abraham, to whom it was said that in your seed, someone descending from you will be a blessing to the nations. Peter says, you're that one. He says, Jesus, you are the greater son of the great King David. You are the fulfillment of all these great Old Testament prophecies. You are the one Isaiah was talking about when in chapter 9, verse 6, he says that someone would come who was the wonderful counselor, the mighty God the everlasting father, the peace prince. You're that one, Jesus. You're the one Micah said would be born in Bethlehem. You're the one of whom Jeremiah said that God would raise unto David a righteous branch, and this is the name by which he shall be called the Lord our 
righteousness. You, Jesus, are the one that Moses and all the prophets spoke about. And this confession, says Jesus, is the rock-solid foundation of the church. Now you know this is interpreted a little differently in some traditions, like the Catholic tradition. But Jesus, after Peter had made this great confession, says, you are Peter. That word in Greek is petros, and it means little stone. You're a rocky, says Jesus. But upon this rock, and that's a different word, folks, and it means boulder. So Jesus says, you're a firm, young, rock-solid guy, Peter, but I have a different rock that I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build a boulder. And what is the boulder? It's the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That confession is the rock-solid foundation of the Christian church and always has been. It's the rock of Gibraltar, not some little pebble like Peter was. Jesus and the confession of who he is is the foundation of the Christian church. Who is Jesus? He is the son of the highest and the friend of the lowest. He is the Lord of glory, but also the compassionate Savior. At the Father's right hand, he hears the angel voices singing unending praises, but those same ears are always tuned to hear the faintest call for mercy and forgiveness and salvation. Isaiah was great, and so was Elijah and Jeremiah, but a greater than any prophet is our Jesus. Herman Bobbing, one of the great theologians of our own tradition, the uncle of B.J. Bobbing, who was my professor at the Free University of Amsterdam, Herman Bobbing, whom Karl Barth said, was the greatest Protestant theologian in the first half of the 20th century. Herman Bobbing, on his deathbed, asked someone to come and read him the story of Jesus one more time. God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, Elijah, Jeremiah, Jonah, and all of them. And whether that name is shouted from the pulpit or whispered in the ear of the dying, there is no other name that can bring peace to the human heart. He's the lily of the valley. He's the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. 
that one day, pray that it may be soon, one day the heavens above us are going to split open and the sight of his glory will make the mountain shake. And then every knee will bow, regardless of opinion. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's our privilege to do it now and not wait for that day when we will have no choice.